Well, this is week two of our spring and summer series out of the Gospel of Mark. And I'm titled it, as I mentioned earlier, Just Jesus, Just Jesus. We're just looking at Jesus and seeing who he is. Uh, Jesus, although Mark writes one of the earliest Gospels that we have, about 40 years later in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, Jesus speaks to seven very real churches, just like Central Assembly. Uh, he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, but through the Apostle John, he speaks, and, and those churches are what we know today as Western Turkey. And I just wanted uh, to let you know that I'm taking a tour, taking a group with, with Jeremy Stein, who'll be guiding us, and we are going to be touring these locations in Western Turkey, as well as many of the places that Paul preached on his first few missionary journeys. And I've just received word that that the deadline's been extended to the end of May, so if you would yet, if you've been toying around with it, I encourage you to come. It's a lot less expensive than a trip to Israel. I hope to do that next year, but uh, it's a wonderful opportunity. You will love this trip, so we have cards at the counter over there as we uh, think about the difference that Jesus began to make in the ancient world, just like he's making a difference in our lives today. So today I want to speak specifically about what happens when Jesus shows up. What happens when Jesus shows up? And our, uh, our scripture will be Mark chapter 3, verse 1. It's the moment when Jesus showed up to a synagogue service. Verse 1 of chapter 3. And another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. And some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal that man on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, oh, stand up in front of everybody. He got called out. And then Jesus asked him, the rest of them, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do, good or evil, to save life or kill? But they remained silent. And he looked around them in anger, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Now, some of you have read books by a casual acquaintance of mine, Pastor Mark Bat uh, um, Batterson. Uh, he's, got a he's got numbers of very clever sayings that sort of stick with you. One of them is, the Holy Spirit plus caffeine equals awesome. It's <laughs> kind of how I feel this morning. Had both. Another thing he likes to say is that every preacher needs at least five favorite quotes that they keep going back to. And, you know, I actually have five favorite quotes that you hear me going back to, and here's one of them. By the British novelist Dorothy Sayers. The people who hanged Christ never accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations like us to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with the atmosphere of tedium. God help us. If there's anything that Jesus is not, it's boring. 
Just try inviting him into your life and, and watch how he puts everything on his head and takes you on an incredible journey. He's not boring. He's confrontive. He's powerful. He breaks the mold and he brings the rule of God. He's not boring. So what is it like when Jesus actually shows up? And I'm going to give three things out of this story that, that answer that question. And for those of you wonderful note takers, uh, I'll probably say a couple of things under each one of these three things. But basically, three things happen when Jesus shows up. And when we pray for revival, we're praying, Lord, just show up in an unusual way. And these three things will always happen as well. First of all, people encounter God. This is not exactly Mark's main point in telling this story because he's already demonstrated that Jesus heals. But let's not skip over the obvious. When Jesus shows up, people meet God. There's an encounter with the living God. So, it, 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 so we just read it, Mark 1. Another time Jesus went to the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. We don't understand exactly what might have happened to him, but likely somehow he had lost the, the use of the nerve endings in the end of his hand. They had died somehow, and so his hand had atrophied. The muscles had atrophied, and his hand had literally shriveled, and he lost use of it. And he was here, and he was in the synagogue. Um, in the ancient times, it would be a kind of an embarrassing thing to have a disability. That should never be the case for anybody, but it was in this culture and I'm sure he was sitting in the back row. They weren't sitting in rows facing the front. They were sitting around the, the walls like this. And, 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 and he's there in a shrill hand. And all of a sudden, Jesus calls him out. And he said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. That's about the last thing he was wanting to do that moment. But God had a plan. When Jesus shows up, we, we meet the power of God. And so Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. He had an encounter with God. And his hand was supernaturally and completely restored. I want to say two things here. Number one, we may have joy when we're together, but we are not here to entertain. We may have joy. And I love the joy when we come together and worship and fellowship in the lobby and fellowship here and just loving to be with each other. It's always a fruit of revival. But, but when Jesus shows up, people meet God. That's why we're here. May I just say this as a pastor? I mean, I love Branson, but coming to church is not going to a Branson show. It's not dropping a few dollars in like some kind of entrance fee at the offering boxes at the back and then sitting back and just waiting for the show. It, it, it's a participation in the life of God. We may have joy, but we're not here to entertain. In God, instead, here's what God wants. God wants the shriveled of soul to encounter Him. And you may be here, and I know it's very easy to sit and to think, I even have these thoughts as a pastor. Uh, there's a lot of better people in this room than me. But it's a lie. I want to tell you there's not a human being that haven't had the nerve endings of their heart dulled and put to death 
through the sinful choices we have made that bring death to the soul. There's not a one of us that hasn't had a soul shrivel up compared to the word of life God could speak into our soul to make our hearts alive and fulfill all we were created for. I mean, there's not a person in this room, pardon me for saying this, that doesn't have a shriveled soul that Jesus still wants to speak into. And that's what it's about. Jesus came to synagogue on the Sabbath day. He showed up that day and people started meeting God when that which was shriveled was made alive again. I can't sing to you because I can't sing very well, but I'll tell you the best of entertainment couldn't do that for you. Might make you laugh, it might move your heart, might even make you cry. But there's nothing like what God can do when you're in his presence. This is not a show. This is a time where we encounter the living God. The second thing that happens is not only do people meet God, but compassion wins out. <laughs> compassion wins out. Against the backdrop of a very religious world that can become rigidly religious, and forget what it is to actually care for people. So in verse 2, we read it earlier. Jesus come in. There's a man with a shriveled hand. And it says some of them were putting two and two together. They knew that Jesus possibly could not resist the temptation to heal a guy who needed his touch. But they, they knew this was the Sabbath day. So some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath day. And, and the when is really important. It's the Sabbath day. Now, I want to encourage you, it's not the Sabbath day that's the bad guy in this story. The Sabbath was actually marvelous. After the people of God were delivered out of hundreds of years of slavery under Pharaoh in Egypt, and Moses led them across the Red Sea, and they landed in the wilderness God gave them, made a covenant with them, and gave them the Ten Commandments. In the middle of the Ten Commandments is a commandment that on the uh, seventh day, you're not to work. God was very clear, just like God created in six creative days and then rested on the seventh. To show that you belong to God, he said, I want you to stop working on the seventh day. And it was a marvelous thing because God was saying to them, your identity is no longer defined by the productivity demands of the Pharaoh that you've been working under. Where even your ability to exist depended on your ability to produce. God would say to us in the corporate world of the 21st century, you're more than a number on assembly line. You're not defined by what you produce. Your value is not found in what you produce. Your value is found in the coming of the kingdom of heaven taking you. You belong to him. You're not defined by what you do. You're, you're not a doing. You're a being. You are not defined by what you do, what you produce. Everything is defined on a different basis in Jesus about you. And to these people who had been slaves, God says, you need to take one day every week where you produce nothing, where you are completely unproductive, where you don't do any work. And understand, it's not your productivity that gives you value or worth in my sight. 
even being still and just knowing I'm your God. This is what would define you. That's, so the Sabbath, almost more than anything, defined Israel as the people of God as opposed to the people of Pharaoh who, when they were under slavery with Pharaoh, they worked seven days a week and their whole value was on what they produced. I love, um, I, I love the, the book by uh, Walter Brugman on the Sabbath day. He just entitled it, Sabbath as Resistance. Sabbath was a statement of protest against everything that defines us by our productivity and leaves us with only God. And the Pharisees had emerged on the scene well before Jesus came, and they were actually the holiness movement. They believed the priesthood had totally corrupted, and so they wanted to lead people back to God. They wanted to lead people back to obedience to the law and especially obedience to the Sabbath. And so... To, keep, to help keep people from breaking the Sabbath. That's the law, you know, uh, keep the Sabbath. Don't work on the seventh day. To keep them from breaking that law, they, they surrounded with all kinds of other laws like fences so they wouldn't even get close to breaking the Sabbath law in the Ten Commandments. And this is where all kinds of other legalisms began to develop about the Sabbath. Like you shouldn't even do good and heal a guy on the Sabbath. I mean, that's against our law. It wasn't against the Ten Commandments. It was just all these other fence laws that they put around it. You can see that a little bit even in, in Israel today. I've been in Jerusalem numbers of times on the Sabbath day. And in my hotel, sometimes I get on the wrong elevator. Because in a lot of hotels in Jerusalem, on the Sabbath day, they designate one hotel to be called the Sabbath, uh, one elevator to be called the Sabbath elevator, the Shabbat elevator. And that means that so that you don't have to work to press a button to go to the 10th floor, the, uh, it just automatically stops on every floor. And it's a long way to the 10th floor when you get on the wrong elevator. You know, I'm used to hit 10 and boom. And sometimes I've got, at least twice, I've gotten on the Shabbat elevator by mistake. And it'll make every sense of drivenness inside of you go crazy takes a long time and the doors you can't press a button to close the doors quick they open nobody's there just stand there looking at your watch and they close then up to the next floor they open you stand there look at your watch they close all the way up to the 10th floor so these were like all these other laws that's, that tried to keep people a long way away from ever violating the Sabbath and so it's now by the time Jesus arrived these things had become codified. The Pharisees had really lost their heart for holiness. Instead, they had this passion for rule-keeping, rules that weren't actually in the Word of God. And so they're going to watch Jesus. And they were so ridden with religious rigidity. And may I just make this statement right here. Religious rigidity should never replace human compassion. It should never replace human compassion. And sometimes when we're around religious things, pretty soon we, we kind of, we're, we're not defaulting to relationship with him. We're just, trying to, we're just trying to keep the rules that we think my church wants me to keep. And they may even be valid rules. But this is what the religious spirit looks like. It's rules without relationship anymore. It's laws without love. It's holiness, but no heart. 
It's tradition, how we worship traditions and idolize them sometimes. But it's tradition without transformation. It's even judgmentalism, but without Jesus, where some things we ought to be judgmental about, like injustice, but it's without Jesus, and we become rigid. If I could put it in a word, it'd be, it'd be conviction without compassion. And we need convictions, not we don't have convictions. And sometimes those convictions in our culture today are making us look bigoted. Listen, we hate nobody. We want to oppress nobody. We want to victimize nobody, even even though they make totally different lifestyle changes, uh, choices than, than we believe are right. We love everybody. But we don't give up on our convictions. But it's conviction with compassion. And this is what Jesus runs smack into here in this synagogue this day. And they're looking at him like, would you dare to do something good to somebody? Because it's Sabbath. You don't want to punch, you don't even punch the elevator button. It's Sabbath. How dare you? Now, they believe you could save a life of an animal or a human being, but to do good, that, you know, this wasn't life critical. Having a shriveled hand didn't, wasn't terminal. And so they're watching him, and they are so in the wrong ballgame as far as God's concerned. And that's why I think here at the church, here in every arena of our lives, ministries are supposed to serve people, not the other way around. You're not here for the ministries of the church. The ministries of the church are here for you. And some of us have been in very hurtful, toxic church experiences or religious experiences of other kind where we did feel like we weren't that important. We did feel we were there more to be used than to be loved. That they more wanted our money and when I lost my job, they could care less about me. Sometimes we're, we've been in church places where we just feel pushed and manipulated and guilted until we somehow conform to kind of some standard we may not even be able to find in the Bible. And, 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 and it just hardens our heart. But look what Jesus said. And Mark recorded this just before the story we read today. It's at the end of the previous chapter. Mark's editing these stories together to make a point. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You know, programs don't exist. Uh, Programs exist for you. You don't exist for the programs. This is all about compassion. Compassion wins out. Listen, when Jesus shows up, people encounter God And compassion wins out. Hallelujah. And then this is a tough one. I'm going to close with it. The third thing that happens, this is going to hurt. I mean, our hearts are revealed. I mean, hearts get revealed for what they really are. Jesus just has a way of revealing our hearts. Listen, it was, we would say today, the same church service, but back then the same synagogue service on Sabbath. One guy leaves with his hand healed. He's encountered God and his heart's full of joy. And I'm sure he loved Jesus. But look at what verse 6 says. But the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they may kill Jesus. you imagine this? You're in the presence of God. You see a miracle. And people could react in two such opposite ways. But Jesus has a way of ripping your heart open and exposing it. He's going to bring to the surface what's really in your heart. It's what's really in your heart. That's why you'll often hear me say, 
that there are days when Jesus bothers me more than he blesses me. <laughs> and I want to tell you, Jesus may bother you before, before he blesses you because you've got to deal with some junk inside. You've got to kind of get to that place in your life where you're opening up to him. We call it the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And this is becoming very difficult in American culture right now because we, we just blame guilt on religion and, and, and we don't believe there's moral absolutes. In fact, Tim Keller in a recent article, that famous pastor, uh, in a recent article called Lemonade on the Porch, he said, how do you convict a person of sin if they strongly believe that morality is socially constructive and that we get to define ourselves for ourselves what's right or wrong? So if we just get to choose right or wrong ourselves. I mean, how do you convict people about the condition of their hearts? And he said, how do you motivate a person to care about the Christian message if they believe there's no afterlife and that the only happiness that can be grasped is material, is this world pleasure and comfort? Or how do you speak to somebody about salvation if they don't believe in a personal God but only in a spiritual life force that permeates everything? I mean, how, how do we even address a Jesus who reveals our hearts to a culture like we live in today. And part of his answer is, is, is saying, you know, Christians, we, we get to be both positive and negative. The Christians, we, we offer the compelling case that the Christian worldview speaks to the basic and legitimate human longings of the human heart. That the Christian position and the life of Jesus truly fulfills our human destiny. But at the same time, here's the bad news, it, it causes us, the Christian message causes us as Christians to have to confront the false idols in every culture, he says, that are looked to for the satisfaction of those longings. We stand in confrontation of every counterfeit, of everything that will leave you empty, of everything that will wither your soul if you put all your eggs in that basket and leave your creator out of it. So, Keller says, when the gospel is rightly preached, it not only appeals, but it offends. And there is a, there is a way in which when Jesus shows up, um, people will meet God. It, it, it's, it's not going to be rigid religiosity. It's going to be compassion winning out the love, like that word this morning during worship, the love of God just drawing us. But also, there's going to need to be the conviction of sin. I know no revival, true revival, without God confronting our hearts. Some left that synagogue service wanting to kill Jesus. And when he bothers you, that is some people's response. When he begins to convict you, you run away. You start blaspheming him. You start making every excuse in the world to stay as far away from Jesus as you can. Or you run to him in repentance, in honesty about your heart. Duncan Campbell uh, lived in the 20th century in the British Isles. He, was a Scottish, he became a Scottish revivalist, although when he was a young, young boy, um, fifth in a, children, a family of 10 children, Duncan Campbell uh, was a musician and he'd play at events. And he was playing at this one charity event. His heart wasn't right with God, he knew it. 
And he said, all of a sudden, halfway through that charity event, I was playing my pipes, and he said, it's just like I, I came under this incredible sense of conviction. This, this sense of guilt and emptiness just overwhelmed me until literally I dropped my instrument halfway through that event and ran home desperate to get right with God. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He later, after World War II, started to minister. He was part of the Hebrides revival. And, and, and he would talk about his meetings in which God, when Jesus would show up, he'd expose people's hearts. And he would say that sometimes the presence of God would come so intensely that a wave of the conviction of sin um, would sweep across my audiences. And, and he said unconverted people would begin to groan in distress and pray prayers of repentance. They became distressed that their hearts weren't right with God. And even Christians who had become careless, they, they would fall under conviction of their own sinfulness and compromise. And they'd fall out. He said, sometimes from my crowds, there'd be whole groans that would come up of conviction of sin. We have, I've been in Moldova twice. We've had a lot of missions connections with Moldova. We've had the general superintendent of the Assemblies of God there preaching our church here. And uh, back in 1968, Moldova was under Soviet control, under technically legal atheism. And, and the Spirit of God broke out in 1968 in Moldova. And Maureen Wise, who wrote the book Celestial Fire, she talks about a personal, con uh, a personal letter writing she did with some eyewitnesses in that revival. And, and one of them said, this because she said when the Spirit of God came in power, um, there was such conviction of sin that came over people's lives. Some of them didn't even believe in God, but God's conviction began to come. And, and this person wrote Maureen and said, I've been in many, many meetings here in Moldova where after preaching or after a Bible study, the conviction, conviction of sin is such that the whole congregation will be on their knees crying out to God for forgiveness. The whole congregation. I want to tell you, when Je it's wonderful when he does signs and wonders. That's what he did in this synagogue. When Jesus shows up, people met God. That guy's hand was withered. Withered hand was healed. Like our withered souls can be healed. And, and it's wonderful that Jesus did it, even though it was technically against the law, because compassion always wins out with Jesus. He cares more about you than the program or the event. But this is also the inconvenient truth that he's going to expose what's in your heart. Like he did with these Pharisees who left that meeting having witnessed the glory of God, having vowed that they're going to kill him sooner or later. He'll always expose your heart. But here's the good news. Yet with Jesus, the door is always open. With Jesus, the door is always open. That's why repentance is like the door opener. It's like God... Forgive me, I'm going to turn around. Forgive me. And it's the door opener. And it just kind of brings the presence of God. So in the next couple of verses, Mark says, so Jesus, he withdrew from that place. It was a little constricted. It was a little limited in that town. And so he went down by the Sea of Galilee so that larger crowds could gather around him. He said they came from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions around Jordan, around Tyre and Sidon. They were coming, Jews and Gentiles. They were coming. Why? Because the door is always open with Jesus. 
You'll always encounter God when you get close to Him. And you'll, you'll always understand that His love wins out in your life. And uh, you'll also understand He doesn't play games with you, but He searches your heart and He exposes what's really there. So Lord Jesus, here we are in Your presence. Thank You, Jesus. Thank You, Jesus. Some of us so shriveled up, would You touch us again? Some of us, we've kept away from you. Would you take us again? Lord Jesus, would you forgive us? We give our whole lives to you if you'll come for us. And take us today and save us. Lord, some of us, maybe we've come a little rigid. We don't love people like we used to love people. We just kind of looked at them judgmentally. We got pretty cynical about church and people and everything else. Would you forgive us? Let compassion went out again in our lives. Lord Jesus, we pray that you'll convict us. We pray that you will send a revival to our nation, not with everything but repentance, but with the door opener of repentance at the front end. Lord, that we will, in a culture that doesn't even hardly believe in right or wrong anymore, that you will convict us of our sin and you will bring us to you and cause our withered souls to grow, to have life. Speak, O oh God, life into your church and our nation. Speak life into our church. Speak life into our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray and we thank you, Lord. We thank you when you show up, people encounter God. Thank you, Jesus, when you show up, compassion will always win out. And that, Lord, you'll show us our hearts for what they really are. My God, thank you for this in your mercy. Hallelujah. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Come, Holy Spirit, to make our souls alive again. Come by your Spirit. Hallelujah.